And if you're staying, why don't we pray? Father, I pray that as we come together this morning and we look at, the, again, the book of Revelation, on one hand it seems incredibly complicated, and on the other hand it seems quite simple because it really keeps taking us back to the person and work of Jesus. To that end, I pray that you'd open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that they might hear his voice, see him for who he is. I pray for those maybe who've been Christians for a long time, that they would be uh, uh, persuaded even more of his power to change them, to save them. Father, I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. And amen. Well, you know, this week I had a... I have trouble keeping up with dates, among other things, and the kind of dates that I have trouble more than anything else is sort of um, made-up Christian holidays. or, or Like, who proclaims that something is a national day of X? I, I mean, because it seems like Presbyterians are always last to know. And so this week I was watching some YouTube videos, and I came across a video. It was really funny. And it said, don't forget, this Sunday is National Back to Church Week. And I thought, well, that's cool, because I'm preaching the mark of the beast. 666, welcome back to church. So if, if nothing else, you could say when you go home and people say, well, you went back to church, it was the first time in 20 years, how was it? You could say, well, it was interesting, right? I hope. So we're going to jump in this morning. We looked last week at Revelation chapter 13. And verses 1 through 10, and we talked about this thing called the beast. This morning we're going to talk about another beast that's related to the first beast. Before we do that, I want to have a little fun with you. Um, we used to play a game called Snaps or Claps over in the NPR. Basically, I want to, basically I'm going to show you a bunch of images, and I want you to decide for yourself, are they real or are they fake? Are they real or are they photoshopped? And so the first image, I figured I'd start out easy. Fake. I mean, you don't have to say it out loud, because at some point you're going to speak out loud and you're going to be wrong, and you're going to be a little bit embarrassed of just, just saying. Yeah, it's a fake. This is actually a fake from, from, I think, in the 1840s. So they've been faking for a long time. How about this one? Mmm, it's real fake, actually. In fact, not only is it fake, but they thought Lincoln wasn't stately enough, and so they painted his head onto the body of John C. Calhoun, who was a southern politician. That was back in the 1860s, and that was before Photoshop, of course. So let's continue. Keep it fun. How about, is that real or fake? Mm, you know, anxious. That one's actually real. Now, who would build a huge table like that? I don't know, but nonetheless. How about this one? Real or fake? Mm, I think the photo's actually real, but someone Photoshopped ears onto that cat. I, I don't know why. I wouldn't have done that, but how about this? Real or fake? Yeah, that's actually real. It's real expensive. That's a, a tennis court in Dubai. Yeah, and how about um, this one? Oh, everyone does that. Oh, little coconut head monkey. Um, of course, that's fake, but you could say, isn't it interesting what people could do with Photoshop? How easy it is to like trick your eye. And of course, how about this one? Unfortunately, that's real. I don't even know what that creature is. And then finally, last but not least, real or fake? 
photo's real, and the question is whether or not the, the creature is real. And of course, we all know the answer. Why did I go through that exercise? The answer is, is just this, is that I wanted to, to just bring to our attention how easy it is for us to be deceived. I mean, you can look at something. I mean, you know what I could have showed you and done real or fake, and it would have been a fake almost 100% of the time, is just show you pictures of supermodels. Almost 100% of the time, they're airbrushed to make them look a lot better than they actually look. And, of course, girls look at those and think, oh, my gosh, I'm not skinny enough, and, and they end up getting in trouble. And it's just fake. They're deceived. And so if our eyes are easily deceived, so our ears are easily deceived, too, aren't they? When we listen to lies other people say, or we listen to, we found out a few weeks ago that the, the, the Satan, the arch enemy of God here, he's called the deceiver. He's all about deception. It's not just what you see with your eyes, but it's what you hear with your ears. Remember, the big, we looked at the big lie from the children's Bible that God doesn't really love you. He's all about deception. And so as we continue into chapter 13, on one hand we saw this first beast. He, he's all about um, oppression, if you will. The second beast is all about deception. And so before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of review about the seven churches that this book is addressed to, because that's important as well. I was thinking about it this week, and I couldn't think there's not one letter in the New Testament that is written, uh, that, that, that is written and it doesn't take into account the original audience. In other words, the Apostle Paul never wrote a letter. He never wrote, Dear Galatians, I'm writing you this letter, and it has absolutely no application in your lives. But two or three thousand years from now, people will read it, and they'll know what I mean. There's no letter in the New Testament. Every letter that was written to people in the New Testament, in the ancient Near East, was expected that they would read it and understand it and apply it. And that's important for you to remember, especially when you study Revelation, because most people, when you jump into Revelation, we sort of throw all those guards out the window. And so if you remember, first of all, Revelation was written to seven churches, and the first two churches were what I'm just calling bad churches. Remember the churches, the bad, the bad churches, and they're, they're made in this sort of triangle where basically Ephesus and Laodicea, and the reason they were bad is because on one hand, Ephesus was a great big church. Remember, Jesus' mother Mary was probably a member there. They had lots of money. They had lots of programs. They had lots of everything. They had great theology, except Jesus tells them that they lost their first love. He says that because of that, if they don't recover it, he'll remove their lampstand. had all to do about being outwardly faced. They... they They'd become a church that was great at theology and great at programs, but very poor at being outwardly faced and serving those around them. So he says, I'm going to pull you. Same thing with the last church, Laodicea. That's the most famous one, probably. He says, you're neither hot nor cold, and since you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The, middle, the, the second group of churches, those were good churches. And by good, I mean they hadn't messed up yet. In other words, remember Smyrna and Philadelphia? They're both basically being, suffering some kind of persecution, but in the middle of persecution, they were being faithful through it. They hadn't compromised. They hadn't sold out. They weren't knocking things out of the park by any stretch, but at least they weren't compromising. And then you had three churches in the middle, Pergamum, Thyatira, and, and Sardis. And those churches, yeah, you know, they did some things right, and they did some things they needed to improve upon. But the bottom line is that all of the churches had a few problems in common. The, problem, the big problem they had in common is that they were all struggling to be outwardly faced. Some were, were not struggling at all, bad churches. Others were struggling, persecuted churches. Others were, yeah, sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't. 
but all of them were being called over and over and over again. So when you read the book of Revelation, what you hear over and over and over again is this exhortation for those who are Christians, part of the church, to be outwardly faced, to bear witness to this thing called the gospel. And they were struggling with that. And the biggest opposition to their being able to bear witness at that time was the Roman government. The the Roman government. And each one of these churches, by the way, the city in which they were located, by the time that this letter was written, each one of them had a temple dedicated to the current Caesar. And worship was expected. So all of them, to different degrees, struggled with the way the government treated them or the way the government expected them to act. And then others had trouble with the religious organizations who served the government. That all comes into play in chapter 13. In other words, the seven churches, when they read chapter 13, I think it would have made a lot more sense to them initially than it makes sense to us initially. So with all of that said, let's jump in. We talk about this thing called the beast. Remember last week we, we noticed the first beast. And who was the first beast? I equated the first beast with basically government. But not just any government. We equated the first beast with government gone wild. Their government that was out of control. In other words, on one hand, God gives humans government because humans are sinful. They need some government. And the purpose of government is to maintain order and to punish evildoers. But the proclivity of governments, because they're made up of sinners, is to become bigger and more oppressive over time if they're not checked. And so the beast I think John is getting at in the first part of chapter 13 is the government gone wild. The Roman government, for sure, the the seven churches would have thought, but any government that gets out of control and begins to persecute the church or persecute anybody for that matter. And that gives us some kind of idea of who the second beast is. We're going to look at the same three things with regard to this beast and that beast. We're going to define him, we're going to describe him, and finally we're going to talk about how do you survive him. Define him, describe him, and survive him. And I'm, from, from this point on, I'm going to try and call the second beast the false prophet. Because later on in the book of Revelation, he's called the false prophet several times. And I noticed in the first service, it, I kept getting tongue-tied between beast one and beast two. So I'm going to try that. Okay? So let's define the beast first of all. So if, the first, if, if beast number one is government gone wild, who is beast number two or the false prophet? The simple answer is that it's religion. The more specific answer is that it is religion in service of oppressive government. Or really, it's religion in service of any government. Again, the seven churches would have had to deal with not only um, Jewish people who didn't like them, who were ratting them out. Remember, uh, churches like Smyrna, Thyatira, people would come and say, uh, those who from the synagogue of Satan, they would come and tell the Roman authorities that the church wasn't with the program. But not only did you have Jewish people who would rat them out, but, but Caesar had his own people who were basically like priests that would also check to see if people were bowing the knee to Caesar. We were saying Caesar is Lord. And so you had, in the Roman Empire, certainly you had religion that was in service of the government. Another way to put that is religion that's a propagandist for the government. In other words, the government, remember we talked about last week that the government, you, you know that government has gone bad 
when government constantly promises to you things that only Jesus can provide. If, Jesus, if the government says, I'll never fail you or forsake you, if government says, I will always take care of you 100% of the time, if government says, I will always protect you, you know that it's sort of at a little bit out of skew if it begins saying that, because those things only Jesus can provide. But the primary way that government oftentimes does that, especially in the Roman Empire in the book of Revelation, is that the religious people come alongside and, and begin to sell that same vision, if you will. That religion can be, in this book becomes a propagandist for the government. And for that reason, by the way, and, and a few others, that's why I'm very hesitant to talk about politics. I mean, I think I've told you last week that in the last election, uh, every week I would have things in my box some from Republicans, some from Democrats, that would tell me, here's how you can preach in such a way about John McCain being elected that you won't get in trouble with the IRS. And other people would put stuff in there that says, here's how you can preach about Barack Obama without getting in trouble by the IRS. And all of those, by the way, were in the recycling bin, so you should be happy about that. I didn't waste paper. Um, but the reason I don't do that is because the church isn't the handmaiden of the government. The church isn't the servant of the government. The church is what it is. In fact, several years ago, when I first became the pastor, I don't even think I was a senior pastor yet. I was trying to not get the job, so I would do things like this. We didn't put the flag back up after Christmas programs. And I know some people didn't like that. Some people still don't like that. But you know the rationale, don't you? There's a couple. One is because the American flag code. You know the American flag code said that whenever, it says whenever the American flag is, is displayed, it must be the most prominent object in the room. And in our church, the most prominent object in the room is that thing right there, the cross. And unless you want me to put the flag over the cross, we just can't do it. But the other thing is this, is I don't want people to become confused with, the, with thinking that being an American equals being a Christian. If you are an American, that does not necessarily mean you are a Christian. What makes you a Christian is faith in Jesus Christ. And you can have faith in Jesus Christ whether you're an American or any other nationality. In fact, I would urge you to do that. And so religion it gets in danger oftentimes of becoming a propagandist for the, the government when in fact I think that just simply muddies the gospel. And as Christians, you have to ask yourself, how much hope are you putting in the government? I mean, because if you spend any time around an a, a, evangelical church, it doesn't take long to hear people say, if we could just pass this law, our country would be a better place. If we could just do this, we could just do that, if we could just get the right government, if we could get the right presidential candidate, if we could get the right this or that, our country would be fine. And you know what? That, that is just whistling in the dark. You can't trust in that. It's like trying to play whack-a-mole. You might get the right president, but you get the wrong Congress, or you get the wrong Congress and the right president. You get all these things. You can't control it. And because of that, the church needs to bear witness, not constantly try and form events. Now, should individual Christians involve themselves? Absolutely. If you feel called to politics, if you feel called to campaign, if you, absolutely. But the church as a whole, our job is to bear witness to Jesus. So, as we continue on, Notice what verse 11 says about this beast. He says, John says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So what we see is this beast rises out of the earth. He has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks 
like a dragon. Right? So it's like you see, have you ever bitten, ran into a, 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 what you think is a very beautiful woman and she speaks and she's like, hello. And it's like, ho, 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 right? The dragon. <laughs> it looks like a lamb. It looks like it's, 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 it's something that you could approach. It looks like something that would care for you. But when it actually opens its mouth, it's dragonish. Why is that? Remember, John is trying to give us information. He's not trying to encode things. He's trying to decode things. And what he's reminding us of is that this false prophet is a counterfeit, just like the first beast was, and just like the dragon is. In other words, in, in the Christian faith, what you have is three persons and one Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? The Father sends the Son, the Son delivers His people, and the Holy Spirit persuades and enables people to have their eyes open to the Gospel and embrace it. In the book of Revelation, what we see, instead of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you see dragon or Satan, you see dragon, beast one, and beast two, or dragon, beast one, and false prophet. And they perform very similar functions. Right? Remember, the dragon wants to make war on the church, and so what does he do? He sends beast number one, just like God sends the Son to fight our war for us. And then God sends the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the Son. And what the dragon does is he sends the second beast to bear witness to the first beast. And that's why the first beast, or the second beast, does all the talking, a lot of it. Notice it, as we seek to describe the beast, what he's like. First, in verse 12, it says, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And remember, we talked about the first beast, how it looked like he was dead and he came back to life or he was healed. It's sort of a mockery of what happened with Jesus. But the first thing that the, the false prophet does is he makes people or exhorts people to worship the beast. Just like the Holy Spirit pushes people to worship the Son, so the, the false prophet or the beast, second beast pushes people to worship the first beast. And the first beast, remember I told you, it's, it's religion in service of government gone wrong. So what else does he do? He performs great signs. Of course, because he's trying to deceive people. He performs great signs, making even fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. So on one hand, he performs great signs. And these signs, are, they sound an awful lot like what happened in the Old Testament with Moses. Remember Moses went before Pharaoh and he performed mighty signs. And then Elijah, against the prophets of Baal, he actually called down fire from heaven. That's what it sounds like. This would be very impressive, I would imagine, to see. And so he, he deceives people. He performs great signs. What else does he do? He slays those who refuse. Look, at, it says, and it was allowed uh, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So what does he do there? There are some people who won't do it. On, on one hand, his, his, what, the signs that he performs and things that he says are ultimately persuasive to some people, and there are other people that are, for whom they're not persuasive at all. And the ones who refuse to be persuaded, those he slays. What's the difference between the people who are deceived and the people who aren't deceived? And the answer is pretty simple. It's the glasses they have on. Right? It, it, there's a movie I thought of in between services. So the first service, if you're listening on the internet, forgive me. If, if you are a fan of movies like 27 Dresses, 
Pride and Prejudice, you know, Little Women. It's the worst movie of all time. If you're a man, however, period, it's the greatest movie of all time. It's the only starring role that I could think of where Rowdy Roddy Piper was the star. And the title of the movie was called, just simply called They Live. And what the movie's about, basically, is he's, this, he's a former professional wrestler, and he finds his pair of glasses. He's a drifter, and when he puts the glasses on, he sees that all around him, the people are actually aliens. Not everybody, but some are. And he's the only one who could tell, but it's because of his glasses that he's able to tell the truth from the false, who, who is, a, who is a, an alien or who is actually human. And the same thing is the difference between those who are deceived by the beast and those who refuse to be deceived by the beast. Those who are not deceived by the beast are not deceived because they're wearing the right glasses. And those glasses are called the gospel. Is the beast telling you that someone other than Jesus is your only hope and comfort in life and in death? If you've got the right glasses on, you can say, no, nothing else is. Is the beast telling you that, all, that if you're just good enough and you participate enough and you do all the right things and you bow the knee to Caesar, you're going to be okay from now and for the rest of your life? If the beast is telling you that, if you have the right glasses on, you know that's not true. Because the right glasses not only help you to see the beast, what the right glasses help you to do is see yourself. When you look at yourself, who you should see is someone who is broken and sinful and wretched and in desperate need of a Savior. And then you look at Jesus and see Him who is holy and perfect and complete and has given Himself completely for your sins. Only if you have the right glasses. But those glasses, by the way, are provided us by the Holy Spirit. You see, what's interesting, the difference between the, the, the false prophet and the Holy Spirit is notice how the false prophet persuades. It's all external. There's nothing that he does that is within your heart. He persuades you by telling you things. He persuades you by showing you things. But how the Holy Spirit of God persuades you is from the inside out. Right? Our catechisms say that, that he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus freely offered in the Gospels. So how about surviving him? Right? This is what you all came here for, I know. We talk about the mark of the beast and the number of the beast. How do we survive this whole thing? Let's look first at the mark of the beast. Verse 16, it says, It also uh, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And so the obvious question is, what is the mark of the beast, Right? And if you, if you want to have a little fun, just go, when you get home, look up on the Google. Just ask the question, what is the mark of the beast? And you could spend hours, you could probably spend days. None of it will be correct. It's everything from barcodes to RFID chips. You know what RFID chips are? They actually use them in, in Eastern Europe in some places. It's a little chip that you can put under your skin. And when you walk into a bar or something, if you want to pay for something, you just wave it. Got all your information in there? Now, everyone knows you don't need an RFID chip in your skin because they're already in your credit cards and your tires and your clothes and everything else in your house. Right? Remember, I told you I wear a tinfoil hat sometimes. You see, when you ask, when you read this passage and you say, What is the mark of the beast? you're actually asking the wrong question. More important to understanding this passage is not what is the mark of the beast, but where is the mark of the beast? 
And did you notice where the mark of the beast was? It was on the forehead or the hand. And as we continue with that, let me read you a couple passages from the Old Testament. You see, when you look at the mark of the beast, remember I've told you over and over again, in the, in the book of Revelation, basically there are two, two camps, if you will, and both of them are marked. Revelation chapter 7, you see that those who trust Jesus, those who believe in the Lamb, are marked. And they're marked on their forehead. And so you're either one of two people. You're either someone who's been marked by Jesus or you're someone who's marked by the dragon. And the question is, why is where the mark is so important? And if you look at the Old Testament, I think you find out. So in Exodus chapter 13, it says this of the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Then if you continue, it says in verse 16, this is is a response to the, the question when your children say, Why do we eat the Passover? You explain it, and then you finish with this. It says, and it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. And then Deuteronomy 6, very similar. He's talking about teaching. He says, tie them, that is God's commands, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, why is that so important to point out when you look at the mark of the beast? Because all the rabbis, when you, you look at the ancient commentaries and things, what do the rabbis think about this? Why did God say to bind these things on your forehead and to bind them on your hands? The answer is pretty simple. Especially if you read the ESV version, it says bind them so they hang in front of your eyes. It's so that God's commands, God's law, who you are as a member of the covenant community is constantly before your eyes. Who you are, your ideology, your belief system, what it is that you believe is constantly right there. He says, bind it right in front of your eyes. And also, he says, bind it on your hand. Why? Because what we believe is always worked out. And so it's bound on your head so you remember it, and it's bound on your hands so you work it out. And so when you think about the mark of the beast being on the forehead and the hands, it's the exact same principle. That what does the mark of the beast do? For one, it refers to his followers as loyal. It refers to his followers loyal, consistent, and wholehearted commitment to him. In the Old Testament, it refers to believers' wholehearted commitment to following God. New Testament, wholehearted commitment to following Jesus. Book of Revelation, when you have the mark of the beast, it's the wholehearted loyalty and commitment to following. The beast, and without which, without this mark, you can't do business. In other words, the mark is no doubt invisible. The mark of Jesus is invisible. The same mark that Jesus gives earlier to his followers is invisible. You can't see it. It's got to be something else. And it's informative to look at the seven churches because some of the seven churches, the reason that the church in Smyrna was poor, for example, is because all of the trade unions required for you to come together and they would have feasts. And at those feasts, everyone had to stand up and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you refuse to say Caesar is Lord, at very least you got, would get booted from the, the trade guild. At worst, you might be persecuted and killed. And so they, by not bearing the mark of the beast, visible or invisible, it affected them. They weren't able to do business back then. Now, is there coming a time in the future where there might be a time when... when Christians are not able to do business because of their testimony? Maybe. Maybe. But there's even more to it, I think. 
Because remember, this whole book is about the gospel. So the, 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 the most interesting thing here, I think, of course, is what does this number mean? 666. Right? Let me read to you uh, verse, 17, or verse 18. It says, This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. In other words, he's saying, this calls for wisdom. Do the math. And they're basically, historically, there are two ways. Both of these ways, by the way, are symbolic ways. The, the first way, uh, using this uh, system called gematria, that's a symbolic way. And the symbolic, when I say symbolic up on the screen, I mean symbolic like we've been doing symbolic for the whole book of Revelation. So what is gematria? It basically is, a, is it's calculations where numbers equal letters. In the ancient Near East and Turkey, they didn't have numbers then. And so you're, you're, they would use letters of the alphabet for numbers. Each letter stood for a different number. Like, you know, if you wanted to, to calculate T-O-M, my name, Tom, it would be 300. If you wanted to do Tommy, 1,040. You see how you can work that? So, so you can basically have the, uh, the, the letters of someone's name and then how much each one of them is worth. And you can therefore take someone's name and see what the, the numerical value is. Now the problem is just this. It depends what language you use. Because if you use English, you get one thing. If you use Greek, you get one, another answer. If you use Hebrew, you get another answer. If you get Latin, you do another answer. And then you can do other things all together. Like so, for example, there, there was a, a, a small movement uh, back in the 80s that, that was completely convinced that Ronald Wilson Reagan was the Antichrist. And they weren't all Democrats. It's because his first, he had three words in his name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, and they all had six letters. Simple enough, right? How, how else would you calculate the Antichrist? And then when they bought a house after he got out of the presidency, you know what his address was? 666. They changed it pretty quickly. You see, the problem with this system of numbers is that it's pretty inconsistent and it's imprecise. And the rabbis used to joke about it. If you don't get the number you want, then just add a title. So, so you'll read some commentaries that say that the number 666 equals Nero's name. But only if you do it in Hebrew and only if you add his title, Nero Caesar. Then it comes out to 666. But if you do it in another language, it doesn't work. And so it's too imprecise and, it, and, it's, and it's too inconsistent to actually be real. And on top of that, it, ha it has nothing to do with the way numbers are handled in the rest of the book of Revelation. And some people would say, really, Tommy, I do think it's Nero, and the reason John is doing that is because he's afraid. In other words, he's giving code for the word Nero because he doesn't want to... to out Christians, you know, and get them in trouble with the emperor. Now that is probably the silliest thing I've ever heard. For one, John is in his late 80s, and he's living on a rock in the middle of nowhere in exile because of the Roman Empire. What else is he going to lose? In fact, if I was John and I'd seen all these visions of heaven, I'd be pretty anxious to be killed. And on top of that, if you read the book of Revelation, he's constantly inviting Christians to put themselves out there to such an extent that they might even lose their lives. So if he was really trying to... to, to 
right Christians, consistent with the rest of his book, instead of writing 666 and making it all like sneaky, he would write in huge letters, Nero, come and get us, boys. He didn't. And so, so it has to mean something else. And if you're consistent with the rest of the book, it has to be symbolic. And so that's, where, do we, where do we go from there? Well, just this. The first thing, when we think about the, the number 666, what does, that, what does that bring to mind? Right? Besides the fact, if you flip it upside down, it's a 999, which means maybe Herman Cain is the Antichrist, right? That was a joke. Those of you listening, I love the Hermanator. What do we mean? Well, the first thing is this, is remember in the book of Revelation that you find all these perfect numbers. Numbers that are perfect, threes are perfect, or complete. Seven is a per- number of perfection or completion. Ten is a good number. Twelve is a good number. Guess what's a really bad number? Six. And not just in the book of Revelation, but throughout the Bible. So what do you have here is you have three sixes. Three is perfect, but six is incomplete. Remember, when, when, was, when was humanity created? Sixth day. If you look at all of the, the, the things we've looked at before, the seven seals that were broken and the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of God's wrath, guess which one of those seals and those trumpets and those bowls uh, unbelievers experienced the judgment of God? The six, the six, and the six. Only with number seven does Jesus come and make all things new. So on one hand, the number three is perfect, and the number six is, is incomplete. So what, is, what are we saying here? If you're consistent with the rest of the book of Revelation, what we're saying here is that the number 666 is, is to show us that something is perfectly incomplete. Or put differently, so there's some, that the, the mark of this one, let me read it to you, that says, that calls for wisdom, the one, let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast. By the way, the beast whose number it is is the beast number one, not number two. We find that out later in the book. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So what is he trying to tell people there? He's talking about, be careful, it calls for wisdom. Don't be deceived by the beast. Don't be deceived by the second beast. He's going to show you great signs. He's going to show you great wonders. He's going to speak. He's going to call you to worship. But let me tell you what his number is. It's 666. He is perfectly and utterly incomplete. In other words, you're going to be tempted to worship him and tempted to follow him, but at the end of the day, he is not what you need. What you need is someone who is utterly and completely complete. You need someone who's utterly and completely perfect. It's interesting, you know, if you do this number system thing, you know what Jesus' name comes out to? 888. I don't know if that means anything, but it gives some of you something to look up later on today. In other words, the name of the, the, the mark of the beast, the, the, the thing that defines him, is being completely inadequate. Completely inadequate to help you, completely inadequate to save you from your sins, completely inadequate to do anything but deceive you and pull you away from the only one who ever really cared about you in the first place. That Jesus is the one who is complete. Jesus is the one who is perfect. And Jesus is the one who gave up all of that. Remember what Corinthians says? This is he, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. That the one who is completely and utterly 
perfect, became completely and utterly wretched so that you and I might become completely and utterly perfect in God's sight. The mark of the beast, his mark 666, it's not going to get you anywhere. There's another interesting twist on this though. Because it could mean something else as well. If you read the Greek text, it actually, there's no article in front of the word man. In other words, it doesn't say, at the end it says, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. There's no article there, so you could also read it like this. You could also say, it is the number of man, or it is the number of humanity, and their number is 666. Still perfectly incomplete, but now the application is to, to humanity outside of Jesus. And in the ancient Near East, uh, things that, when you were associated with someone else's name, that said something about your own character. In other words, you, you, if you were maybe a, someone, a slave who was branded with your owner's brand, that would say something about who you were and your own character. People would expect that you would reflect the character of the one who owned you or the one whose mark was upon you, the one whose number was upon you or name was upon you. Now why is that important when he says this is also the number of man or humanity? Because humanity in and of itself also is, in, is completely incomplete. It's completely imperfect. You know, when I was a kid, uh, all the way from t-ball through to high school, it didn't change until I was a sophomore in high school. Every single baseball season, football season too, um, when jerseys were passed out, I was always given number one. And if you, I, I know a lot of you are immediately thinking, oh, that must be to reflect how good you were. I don't see a lot of heads nodding. You know why I was always given number one? It's because they always passed out the jerseys in order of size. And size went from one to, to, to you know, Jamie is probably in triple digits, I'm imagining, when you were a kid. Um, and so every, I mean, it was just, it was almost like, okay, here's the time when I get told I'm a pipsqueak again. Here's the time when I get told I'm the smallest second stringer on the team. Tommy Allen, number one. And I hated that thing. I would stand out on the field, number one. Ooh, look, they let him play. I wonder if he's going to get a hit. By the time I was in high school, I gained a little weight. I think I was 100 pounds by the time I was a freshman. By the time I was a sophomore, I worked my way up to number seven. But I hated the fact that that jersey, that name said something about me. Or at least I thought it did. And the same thing is going on here, because what is, what is the, the other way of reading this, if it says this is the number of man, is what is it saying? Is that all of us by, by nature, in and of ourselves, we all are wearing a jersey, and you know what a number is? The number of the jersey before Jesus does anything is 666. That number says something about you. That number says that you are perfectly and utterly incomplete in yourself, and you need something else. And what does the gospel say? The gospel offers you another set of clothes. The gospel says, you know, you don't have to wear number one. You don't have to wear number 666. You just wear this one right here. There's not even a number on it. It's so perfect. And it's the jersey that Jesus has. Because what happens at the cross is Jesus takes all of our sin, he takes all of our badness, and he gives us his righteousness, his clothes. So ask yourself when you leave this place, if I'm a Christian, do I really live into that? Am I excited about the fact that my jersey doesn't have, the, this, it doesn't have that on it anymore? Or do you walk out saying, man, I need to change my clothes? Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I pray that as we continue this morning as in the book of Revelation, 
um, that you would just continue to, to both convict us, not so much of our, of our badness and our sin, but convict us of our self-righteousness, convict us of our, of our desire to save ourselves, and really convict us of our own incompleteness and need for Jesus' righteousness given to us. And I pray that you would continue to open our eyes. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.